Hey, everybody. Welcome to Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Woohoo! Yes, so this is our next episode on Jim Jones, our fifth, actually. So if you have not listened to the others, please, you know, give them a listen. They build on each other as we build this psychological profile and look at the history of Jim Jones and how his personality was developed in order to serve actually what happened in a tragic way in Guyana. We are at the point where Jim Jones Jr. is a teen. He's a teen. So we've come to the teenage world and I want to talk a little bit about what he was like as a teen. So I'm going to jump right in. He began to give animal funerals. Hmm. He would gather roadkill, because remember, he's a budding preacher. He would gather roadkill, gather his friends, and give a funeral sermon. When his friends refused to do that anymore, he gathered younger, more submissive kids that he could demand obedience from. And then when that didn't work out anymore, he began to conduct them in the middle of the schoolyard. Oh, where it was that must unavoidable. have gone over well. Yeah, that went over really well. <laughs> Where it was unavoidable and demanded an audience that had not consented but couldn't leave. Familiar. Wow. Isn't that a flash to Can Guyana? Can you imagine those kids? They're like, uh. <laughs> yeah, that's a flash to Guyana. I'm sorry, but that's, right? that is the quality as Yikes. you will see whenever we get to that. Those endpoints, you know, they had not consented to anything he did, but they couldn't go. So. It's this weird, you know, they needed to be at recess. Wow. And he would just do them in the middle of the quad. And that was from, because everyone had, you know, he tried to do it with his friends. They got sick of it. Because he would demand obedience. Like, here's the way it, you must do this. You must shut up and listen, blah, blah, blah. So he also took Pierce to sneak into the funeral home to lay in the caskets. Because this is a really small town, of course. And so nothing's locked. So he would sneak into the funeral home with his friends. And of course, they were excited about that at first when you're a kid doing anything like that would be like, "Ooh, yes, let's go. And then when his peers was bored with that and started to refuse to go, he would just go himself. So there was this fascination with death mm -hmm. pretty early on. He was also church hopping, as we stated in the last episode, sometimes leaving one sermon in the middle to attend another and then another. So he was really researching Jeez. that oratory. He was a very busy kid. I mean, he was known to not have to sleep a lot, to be very energetic during the day. There was, He had a lot of things going on. He was always kind of moving and going and seeking others' attention and just a lot of energy for that. The other thing, his other topic of interest would be that he would also give lectures on sex to his peers and his younger cousins. And there was absolutely no evidence that he was engaging in any kind of sexual activity because he was really an outcast and never seen with any girls at this point. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. The sexual culture was not talked about by youth at this point, even though it was everywhere. So if I can paint a picture like kids were farming and seeing births and understanding the facts of life very early, because when you work on a farm, it's like animals are getting knocked up, you're birthing babies, you, you get it, you, mm -hmm. you know what's going on. 
They also lived in small houses where lots of babies were being birthed and walls were very thin. And I got a lot of this culture stuff from Jeff Gwynn's book that I've talked about pretty regularly. So it wasn't that they didn't know about sex. The kids didn't talk about it. It wasn't that they didn't know exactly what the facts were, whereas these days a lot of kids don't know what the facts are. Mm-hmm or what it's about. It was that it just wasn't talked about openly. So it was just accepted. It was like, you knew what the animals did. You knew what your parents did because like the walls were thin, man. And they, there was no contraception. So babies were happening. It wasn't a discussion that was overly complicated Mm -hmm. at the time. You just didn't talk about it in polite society. These were God-fearing folks, and it just wasn't something that you went into detail about, but you knew. Everybody knew. But just like everything else, Jimmy (laughs) had to orate on the matter, because that's what he did. So he would, like, give lectures on this stuff. (laughs) Like, can you imagine, like, a 10-year-old kid or something? Jesus. And his mother would encourage any and all behavior that was against the norm. He was never in trouble with his mother, which is really interesting, right? From stealing candy bars at stores, you know what she would do? She would go around every weekend and pay for what he'd stolen. Wow. Never attempting to change the behavior, completely endorsing it. Because the shop owners then would endorse him stealing stuff because they knew Lynetta would yeah, just come, come by on the weekend it. and pay for it. It's like entertaining this whole game he played. He just, She just would sit back and smoke and cuss and think it was great that he was like getting away with shit. That was her, like, total permissiveness. Oh, God. Which is so... I'll go pay for his crime. So destructive. Yeah. So destructive. With already the personality that's been developed, that's just like, oh, really, Lynetta? You're not helping. No shock here. He was considered pretty weird by his peers. Yeah. Shocker. His peers all, uh, you know, this is the time of World War II, so his peers all, like, played war as it was that time, and that's the way I believe boys were processing that in the culture, as they were playing war, because it was happening all around them, and, you know, they were reading about it, and their parents were consumed with it, but, but Jimmy was actually more fascinated with Hitler and the Nazis, because by now, he was a very eccentric loner, And he studied and idolized Hitler's power and his story of a poor boy who had determination and charisma and gained power by defeating his foes, which is, of course, him idolizing Hitler, for him, I believe, was more about the oratory Mm -hmm. and more about the control and the followers and the strict obedience that Hitler obviously had over the people that follow him to extremes where they killed a nation for him and Jones that's talk about a forecasting you know Jones was really into that you know the interesting piece of that of course is that Jones was using socialism and equality and had a lot of people of color in his life and and later you find out you know he he adopted all kids from all races and cultures and that was his whole manipulation was that socialism and that we were going to create a community that was colorblind and all of that Mm -hmm. so for him to for him to idolize hitler early on is of course politically completely opposed to that that makes you understand or not believe any of the communism that he may have believed in 
But also, if you look at it simply from a control, power, attention, followers perspective, at that point in his life, Hitler would have been a very charismatic person to him. He mm-hmm. would, so instead of playing war, you know, army with his friends, he would use his many younger cousins and force them to play Nazi sh- soldiers and goose step. And he would use he would yell at them and he would use a switch on them for control. And he would, you know, he just demanded that obedience that we were talking about with like the animal funerals and stuff. He just mm-hmm. wanted them to follow what he was doing. Sure. So their mothers, of course, saw the bruises and cuts. Jesus. And then Jimmy was even more isolated because now he can't even play with family because, of course, the aunts and uncles were like, okay, Jimmy's just as weird as his parents. <laughs> and he's beating on our kids. God. So we're going to take a we're going to take a knee with that. You're not oh going to. Oh, my god! You're not allowed to be alone with my kids anymore. No. You're like abusing them and switching them if they don't goose step like a Nazi. Like, what are you doing? But one interesting piece for Jim's psychology is that Hitler committed suicide in 1945 and Jimmy was 14 years old when this happened and he had been idolizing this guy and he took note of this and actually talked about it frequently later because he seemed impressed with this solution. And what we know now is that that was his solution Mm -hmm. ultimately in Guyana to get himself out of his situation was to commit suicide, Mm -hmm. emulating someone he endorsed and emulated early in life. So, So, I want to take a second and recap Jimmy's skills. Please. <laughs> at this juncture, at this age. At this juncture, 14, hello. He's doing a lot of stuff. I mean, you can see why his powers could have been used for good. Oh, yeah. And there was an appearance of that, of course, throughout his 20s until things went very south with his personality and mental health Mm -hmm. and drug addiction, which, you know, we will learn all about in the future. But so Jimmy's skills, very compelling conversationalist, very charismatic, very interesting person to talk to. And that has in my life been true of most of the narcissistically oriented people I've ever known. Mm -hmm. Very compelling personality. He was a topic expert on sex and religion. So there's that. He could talk your ear off about those topics and probably lots of other topics because, of course, as we know, he had learned about a lot of things, Mm -hmm. airplanes and (laughs) different things from all the people he'd been mirroring his whole life. So he could talk to a lot of different kinds of people. He was a master at eliciting sympathy. Mm. He'd been doing that since he was in diapers, practically, like running around the neighborhood, getting free meals and and having people feel sorry for him. His mother believing you can do no wrong. That's we, a We know that that never thing. turns out well. No. It really doesn't. You see that with with man children. You do. Yeah. You do and and it infantilizes yes. and he had a mother who smoked and swore and worked outside the home and wore pants and denounced the church. Like she was we would admire those qualities, you know, in a in a personality, mm-hmm. except with what we know and how how she treated people and the other parts of her personality. You have that as a mom, like denouncing everything and ostracizing herself, giving you attention when she feels like it and ignoring you when she doesn't. Father is ignoring you 
By this time, he's fully disabled and supposedly drinking a lot, but also the object of a lot of pity in the community. Mm -hmm. But he's not teaching Jimmy anything that fathers taught sons at this point. Traditionally in this community, fathers had the job of teaching sons uh, you know, sons would go to work with dads and they would follow them around the house on the weekends and learn how to fix things and learn what it was to have a job and provide for a family and keep a farm and those kinds of things. And Jimmy didn't have any of that with his dad because the dad wasn't capable any of any of that. But also his dad also ignored him quite a bit. Mm. He had mom ignoring him, father ignoring him, but mom would give him this intermittent reinforcement which we all know is the most addicting and problematic very problematic yeah nothing was consistent with her so and she was okay with everyone out the town raising him like most of the time she was okay with like do whatever you want yeah oh where'd you get dinner tonight oh joe bob's okay great you know like (sighs) didn't care was exhausted was having her own resentful crisis doing her own thing. And one of the things that was really observed by a lot of people at that time was that Jimmy was very emotional compared to other boys. This is that very stereotypical community where you're learning how to do man things. You're learning how to provide for a family, these very traditional gender roles at the time and in that community. But this is a kid who's going around begging for food, giving animal funerals, crying at the drop of a hat, very emotional, and cried openly in public as a way to manipulate, but also probably genuinely. I imagine he was not very in control of his emotion, his mood issues. It's a lot. There's a lot of skill there, though. Well, you know, he, he's learning to use that. I was going to say, he learned to mimic and feed into any anywhere any place that he received reinforcement whether it was stealing or praying that and that's the thing about these folks right is like they learn these really incredible survival skills that if used for good could be really I mean they could be incredibly powerful I mean they do become powerful but not on the right side and because there's no empathy, because there's no real emotional attachments with right. people, that these things that could be used for good, to yes. influence in a good way, without empathy, without vulnerability, without self-reflection, this is why when we talk about personality disorders and sociopathy and all these things, without any of that, you can't relate, you can't do anything good without self-reflection, you don't have the ability to connect with people and do any of this for good. There's just, there's nothing incentivizing him. All of the incentive came through manipulating others and getting his personal needs met. So the more that was reinforced, the less he needed to actually connect with other people. He just started stockpiling all of this for himself. And we know that just eventually leads to the perfect storm of madness, which we will get to, but you know, no vulnerability, no empathy, no self-reflection. Those are the three, you know, components of any sort of narcissism, coercive control, manipulative sociopathic tendencies is if you lack those three things, good luck. Yeah. And he's got this, you know, to add on to that, I, I agree with all of that. And it's a very succinct and and clear way to deduce it. And I would just add that 
that of course means there's this no grounded sense of self that you're working from. That's you're right. actually the way I always look at it as a narcissist is dealing with a shattered sense of self. And yeah. so if you imagine you have a bright blue ball of light inside of you that you might call your center, yourself, that you're making decisions from. Imagine that that's not there and that it's actually a shattered kind of broken mirrored ball type of thing. And it's all of these pieces and each piece you've picked up from someone else. So you're just the supplies you're getting from everybody else in order to kind of squish together like a squishmallow kind of ball that yeah. that looks like a self and you operate from that. Right. Thinking it's you, thinking it's yourself, but it's all this borrowed stuff. This person abandons you. This person ignores you. This person hates you. Your little tiny pieces that were <laughs> creating a self are all flying out the window and yeah. you can't, you can't operate. I believe that that is what we're building here is that picture of Jones's little borrowed self that yeah. he wow. can't operate from a healthy place with no. that. Here's the thing about his dad. I said something about how. You know, his dad is fully disabled by this point, supposedly drinking a lot and the object of love, a lot of pity in the community. But here's the thing. He wasn't actually drinking a lot. Mm. He was compromised physically from the war and he was mentally compromised. Mm. Back in 1932, he had gone to a mental institution for an emotional breakdown that nobody knew about except his his immediate family, his wife, mm -hmm. and he had continued to go in for treatments for the hospital for physical stuff and then to the sanitarium, I'm, I'm sure it was probably called, for mental treatments. And so we didn't have something called PTSD then. He came home from the war mentally a changed person. Maybe he had a TBI, maybe he had PTSD, We have, I have no idea, but he had been having regular mental illness since he had come back from the war. And here's the thing, his family preferred the rumors that he was drunk to the truth about his mental illness. And so he would disappear for short times and the community assumed he was drying out or mm. sick or... Uh, drunk or whatever and he would have balance issues all around town because he was starting to break down physically so he would fall over he would trip and everyone just went with this narrative that he was drunk but he wasn't he wasn't a drinker right but the family preferred that over mental illness which i wanted to highlight because obviously we're god in imagine the business <laughs> i'd rather have that than that Yes, yeah, so they wanted everyone to believe he was a drunk instead of being that mentally was better. ill. Because it was better. Yeah. It was seen as more socially acceptable. That's right. And more, much more common. And that, the, and that there was a level of choice, right? Yeah. Even though we know, you know, with addiction, there now isn't. we know there isn't. But then they would have But it implies this level of choice. They would like, have I like that. to drink. Who says I like to have schizophrenia? Yeah. You but know? of course, he never said that. And no one ever observed him no. drinking. He was in the pool hall drinking soda. And playing cards, not even, wow. you know, there was no drinking there. Then that's where he spent all of his time. So where yeah. was he doing? He was never seen drinking. It was just this fiction. Right. So here's the thing, though, of course. Jimmy just used that story 
of his father being an abusive drunk his whole life Mm -hmm. to gather sympathy because the story of overcoming a horrible father fit into the narrative he needed people to believe about him. So he perpetrated that his whole life too. Yeah. Like his mother, these fictions were helpful in keeping their self together, right? They're keeping their perspective on the world and keeping shame away. Mm -hmm. Because then you're feeling sympathy for me. But if you find out it's actually because my father was mentally ill and had no ability to relate to me as a father... That's not nearly dramatic, as dramatic as having a physically abusive drunk father. Right. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So in high school, uh, Jimmy started dressing his Sunday best. (laughs) Nobody dressed in their Sunday best to go to high school, only on the weekends. But he started sitting in the back of class, debating teachers on minor facts. You can imagine that as being a teacher. Imagine you've had that experience. Mm. Never admitting when he was ever inaccurate, but always fighting in class and about what was going on. He took to not speaking when spoken to. So if you were walking down the hallway and you spoke to him and he didn't, he, he would not respond. But if you wanted to talk to you, he would. So controlling conversations, only initiating conversation. This is him as a teenager. He actually didn't like team sports. Shocker. And wasn't really good at sports, but what he ended up doing is picking teams outside of school and coaching them, usually younger kids. So this is the way he tried to fit in. Sure. You know, in fact, the summer of 1945, he actually created, recruited, managed, and promoted a whole baseball league. Wow. Down to gathering the money from local businesses. I mean, he's such a mover and shaker, right? (laughs) Like driving teams to away games without a license, keeping statistics. Because he was only in 45, he would have only been 14 years old. So keeping statistics on games, bringing the teams home and giving lectures on stats and how to improve. Like he would bring them to his house and then give the lectures about the stats that he was gathering. So unfortunately, one night during one of those lectures near the end of the summer, he was witnessed to having deliberately let a puppy fall through a trap door. And the team refused to be in his league anymore after witnessing that behavior on his part. It was actually an odd occurrence for Jimmy because Jimmy was known to take in stray animals and he never hurt any of them. They were all witnessed and, you know, he always had strays people, animals, even to the end of his life, he was bringing in people that were ostracized by, by the society. And that started very young, bringing in strays. And he had a lot of animals, he cared for them. But on this particular day, I don't know why, but he was obviously triggered by something. And that is what he did, according to eyewitness accounts. And that everyone left and didn't participate they had a hard, they had hard ethical lines, right? They had very, they were God fearing people and that was unacceptable to them. And so he lost his whole 
project, right? So mm. every time he tried to go in a positive direction with his skills, he would just fuck it up. Jesus. Somehow, right? Because of, I'm imagining, some kind of shame trauma trigger that happened that day or maybe with his mom or dad that day and that shit happened with the puppy and they were like, we're out. And then, hmm. meanwhile, his mother was inconsistent doing these inconsistent extremes. Like I said, like she was, she was doing the push pull with him. She was either pushed in reminding him of how special he was or ignoring him completely. She actually really didn't talk to him that much. I mean, even when he was in her sights, like she would lecture him and yeah. hover over him and micromanage him and demand obedience and mirroring and all of that stuff, as we might imagine, for that narcissistic attention, like that supply that she was mm -hmm. looking for. Or she was abandoning him completely. So during Jim's teens, Lynetta actually took up an affair with another local man. And that that went on for many years. And Jimmy actually knew about it, but always sided with his mother mm. because that's what you did, even though ethically, like in his so-called belief system, that would not have flown. And it, and it's interesting, of course, because the family was kind of on opposite sides of the fence. Like some believed it was immoral. Mm -hmm. And some believed that, you know, it was justified. Her husband was so sick and it was inevitable. You know, they all believed he was an invalid and he was physically and mentally ill or drunk or whatever was going on. And so they, some of the family really had a lot of empathy for her and that she probably hadn't had a lot of affection, et cetera. So even with dating, I, I, I gotta say this, like even with dating, Jimmy would get a crush, like this is high school, right? So he would get a crush on someone and then he would follow the girl around. That is so not surprising. She would say she wasn't interested. He didn't matter. The he picked the, I think the one I read the story about was like the most popular kid. That's girl why he would do it. Who if it had was a, a boyfriend. Right. Mm -hmm. Let's see what I can take. Let's see what she I can. She would say she wasn't interested. He didn't care. Well, if anything, that was probably more tantalizing. Tantalizing. <laughs> he would just keep following her, talking, convincing, showing up at her house, befriending her parents. You know, that's how that goes. It's like from every, you know, lifetime TV movie about an abuser, right? Like they end up in your living room. <laughs> Even yeah. in Fatal Attraction. Like yeah. Glenn, Glenn Close ends up in the wife's move living my room. Way in. Yeah. yeah. Forcing himself into the family, which worked for a while. They loved him. They thought he was really great. Isn't he great? Da da da. Not caring that she had a boyfriend or didn't want anything to do with him. She said no multiple times. The boyfriend even talked to her, talked to him. And said, dude, what are you doing? And then if one that day. That wasn't a red flag. <laughs> ridiculous. And then one day, here's another stereotypical that's going to happen. One day, he just moved on. Oh, God. He just realized he didn't, it wasn't going to work. Yeah, I'm done with that. And then he just moved on. to on. the next. He moved on to the smart girl in school. And they ended up having a very like close platonic relationship that never went anywhere, but he just ended up dating some other girl. Like one day it just like it never happened. Never acknowledging that he ever did anything like that. He just moved on. Here, here's an interesting thing. So then the Pentecostal church moves in. Some of you will go, oh God. Because if you know anything about the Pentecostal church, it's speaking in tongues. 
being slain in the spirit, faith healings, loud sermons, singing and dancing, lots of drama and spectacle. And the ministers had a lot of freedom. So Jimmy was like on the porch, like sign me up. Hello. And we're moving into this Quaker community. That was pretty disturbing to a lot of people. And of course, a lot of people went to like gawk and see what it was like. But most of them went back to their, you know, their normal churches or whatever. But Jimmy liked it quite a bit. And here's a funny thing. Lynetta told a story where she asked the Pentecostal leader to not let Jimmy in anymore because she was worried about it. But then the leader let Jimmy preach and she was so mad about it that she like, you know, ripped him a new one and don't let my son do this. Guess what? This story ends up to be a complete fabrication. All Jimmy did was attend and observe like everyone else. But Lynetta creates a whole story around how her son goes there and she's worried about him. And then he preaches and everyone loves him. And she's mad about it. like, what, like, why, why or why, what, what is, what is the purpose of the dramatic story? Like, I right. just, it's so mind boggling. Like, what the fuck are you doing woman? Here is what he did do. So this is another really important piece that sort of steps in and tells you a little bit about what's going on for him. And, and all of these seeds that we're kind of planting about what ends up happening later that all culminate in his, his ongoing ministries and the Guyana tragedies. There were people of color in his county. They were marginalized. They were segregated. Remember, it's the 1940s. Jim would get on a bus and go the 17 miles to a town called Richmond, a town mm -hmm. he had actually spent some time in as a young person, specifically one summer with Myrtle. Mm -hmm. If you remember Myrtle, the Nazarene, who introduced him to church in the first place. And, and he had spent a summer there, so he was a little bit familiar. And probably that was his first exposure to people of color when he was much, much younger. And he would get off the bus and he would go to the poorest part of town with this very derogatory name called Little Africa. And it's where a oh. lot of black people lived and were segregated in these areas because in this day and time, they lived in their own communities because it was too dangerous not to. Mm -hmm. And he would preach at the railroad tracks about how everyone was equal in God's eyes, how it, it's wrong to look down on others, promising if they stayed strong, better times were coming. He sort of, that was the beginning of him preaching his communism and socialist tendencies to a, a community that was looking for that kind of, I gotta say, from what I read, it didn't seem like he was necessarily embraced entirely because you can imagine how that didn't probably go over well all mm -hmm. the time, but you keep going back. I mean, if Jim Jones is nothing, if not persistent, right. So, mm -hmm. and, and stalkery. So he just goes back, goes back, goes back and eventually, you know, begins to be like, you know, the white guy that comes and talks to us and seems like an okay fella kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But, at home, he's carrying a Bible everywhere. He even conducted a mock funeral for the opposing team at a high school pep oh, rally. Jesus. He's and obsessed he was, with funerals. But he was asked to do it. So this is the way that eccentricities have been embraced by yeah. the community. Yeah, yeah. He has this ridiculous do past. It. <laughs> he has this ridiculous past yeah. of like giving animal funerals that they all vilify him for and make fun of him for. But then when when they want an orator, yeah. 
when they want to make a funny joke about, and he of course embraced it with a lot of enthusiasm. And, and this is the way I believe like nobody saw, they thought he was weird, but he's part of this small community. So they just embraced who he was and used him for that. And, and so he's getting validation and attention for that. So he doesn't care. So between his junior and senior years, he and his mother moved to Richmond actually full time, mm-hmm. the place he'd been traveling to. And But this was because that's where Lynetta worked. And also Lynetta's lover of many years had moved away. And so she decided to finally end her marriage with old Jim and move closer to her work. So she took the boy and left and uh, got a divorce. So Jim had started to tell stories of his father being abusive to him and his mother, which there's no evidence of, but no one really believed him because old Jim could barely get around. It's like what I said, like in the very first episode we did where it was like, how, how was old Jim, how was this invalid war veteran who was barely holding on mentally and physically abusing anyone? Like there were never any bruises Nobody could understand how old Jim would do this physically, but Jim Jr. would cry and cry and cry, crocodile tears, when he would tell the stories of all of his abuse. What happened to old Jim? Well, okay. (laughs) So after his family left, meaning Lynetta and Jim Jr. just left, he moved into a hotel because he didn't want to be in the house anymore that his family supported him in, and he actually died three years later. He was only 61 years old, and on his tombstone, it read, Everyone in the world is my friend. Jim Jr. and Lynetta were not seen at the funeral, but Lynetta very quickly filed for her widow's claim to her dead husband's army pension because there was no more help from the Joneses' family. She left Jim Sr., And so financially, she was no longer being given any kind of support by the family. And so she went after the pension and I imagine got it because nobody was going to deny her that at that point. It's rough. I mean, Jimmy didn't make a lot of friends in his new school. I mean, he he made friends through his religion. So Mm -hmm. he did make a few friends. Actually, um, I take that back. He made a few friends. He pursued he continued to pursue girls in weird ways. He held down a night job at the local hospital while graduating a semester early. So here's the thing about him at this time. He's got to contribute to the family now. He's got to get a job. You know, there's only this one income, his mom. And so he actually goes to school all day. He's doing his church stuff and he holds down a full-time night job. And he got very known for not needing a lot of sleep, being able to do this with a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of interest. Secretly, the youth of this Richmond High School that he communicated with wanted communism and equality for all, but the Cold War was upon us. And communism, or even the hint of that, was just like simply not done. And so they kept their beliefs to themselves, but he really actually began to find a community of young people like himself that wanted the same things. And he was working really hard and he got a lot of accolades at that job. He 
was excellent. And next time I'm going to go into a lot more of sort of what happened at the hospital, because that is where he met his eventual wife. Mm. And, and that's an interesting story as you might imagine. Sure. But I wanted to close out this episode by reading this, this little chunk from Jeff Quinn's book, the road to Jonestown about what it was like for Jim Jr. to be working at the hospital. He immediately demonstrated the ability to function on little sleep or f- for, for days at a time. As soon as his final afternoon class was over, Jimmy rushed through homework and reported for duty at Reed Hospital. Once at work, he cheerfully tackled all of the toughest chores that other orderlies tried to avoid. So this is going to be really interesting because... I'm interested to hear our final thoughts on just what you think of this because it go it goes against I think what most people would think of this psychology. So he would tackle all the toughest chores. He was not above anything. This is all like from witnesses telling these stories. Mm-hmm. Above all, these included dealing with cantankerous patients or else seriously ill unfortunates who literally reeked of decay and despair. Jimmy Jones won them over with warm smiles, sweet natured jokes, and always, always empathy. Mm. Patients of every background and their families felt that this young man, quote unquote, understood. His memory was prodigious. Jimmy remembered every sick person's name and the names of the parents and the spouses and the children and the cousins. And as we know, everybody loves to be remembered. Some patients required care of especially personal nature, having diapers changed or being given sponge baths. Jimmy made this potentially embarrassing moments almost fun with his lively chatter and positive attitude. Read management noticed. Orderlies routinely received critical performance reviews. There was nothing to criticize about Jimmy. He was too young to put into a supervisory position over other orderlies, but he could, he could have been and was assigned work to work with doctors and nurses involved in the most critical forms of care. And by the time Jimmy graduated from Richmond high in December, 1948, cause he did graduate a semester early. His choice of future career was in doubt. He'd intended to become a minister, but now he was contemplating a career in medicine, of course. Yeah. Preachers, you know, preachers guide lives, right? But doctors save them. So I can see how that would have been really appealing. Of course, there was a lot of school involved. And he actually went back to his high school girlfriend, the smart one I talked about before, to get counsel about like what he should do. And maybe he should be in hospital administration because that's those are like he could tell doctors what to do if he was in hospital administration. So it's interesting It's interesting how he excelled. Now, I guess my final thoughts for this as we move on from him as a teenager and into adulthood next time is that, how do I interpret that? I interpret it as a way of him finding a place where he could be in control and use all of his skills. Sure. And all of his personality and the skills I was saying, you know, earlier with personality and conversationalism and being very charming and volunteering to do all of the grunt work, which is really interesting for someone like him. And what I hear is he's just a very, very young narcissist, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, and he, and he really hasn't, he just saw these opportunities to 
really dig in and he was getting a ton of relational validation from doing the work because everyone thought he was amazing. And he was the all knowing person that could come in and help you that could come in and save you. And it is that savior complex that he would have gotten from if he had become a full flown doctor, I'm sure. Oh my God. Imagine that another doctor death. Yeah. That's the way I interpret that. Mm. I just feel like maybe that's what he got from it, but I'm not totally sure what he was getting from it. Wow. So that's where I'm going to end today. We've grown him up. So these five episodes have really taken you through his upbringing and really what formed the man. And then as we know, what forms people after you're 18 and through your 20s is also very formative and and what happened and where he moved around to and all the churches he formed. So I look forward to that whenever we do the next chunk of these episodes because that gets us, of course, closer and closer to the actions he took. But I feel like these five episodes really give you a picture of... It's really projective, (laughs) like... Mm -hmm. You have everything you need to know in these 18 years. And of course, my version of it is is highly truncated. It's not everything, but right. it's like There's I just no pulled way. out. I just pulled out what I thought was relevant for the psychological profile mm-hmm. of a youth that would do what he eventually well, did. I, I was about to say, I mean, I think you're giving us a lot of um, context to how someone could could become that. Yep. Right. And so everything from attachment to the development of his narcissism to the way that he learned early on how to manipulate and being reinforced for manipulating. Again, using that example of the stealing as he was he was reinforced to manipulate mm-hmm. and steal and break the law and then, you know, learned very early on also how to win the hearts of people with empathy and to use their empathy against them. And that's essentially what he capitalized on in the end. Absolutely. And I, and I hope I've also given a picture along the way. I tried to do it a little bit in each episode of the culture that he was in yeah. and how much culture informs who we become. That's right. Cause it was very, it was very influential on him. This, all, the, the church and the community he grew yep. up in and, and all the different things that he, he, we know about his culture, cultural upbringing were very influential. Mm. So thank you so much for listening. We very much appreciate you. I hope you like the deep dives that we do. We certainly like doing them and and it gives us a chance to talk psychology, which is what we're here for. (laughs) Please, please, please come back uh, next week when we get back to some more general true crime topics and also for our Friday episodes, which are horror we like to have some fun with that. You know, you don't want to miss the horror yeah, facts with cats. Yeah. <laughs> Jinx. All right. Thanks so much for listening. This has been an episode of Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone.